Hello, device listeners. Welcome to Device Interviews. In this interview, I sit down with Heidi Dewar, and we talk about so much. We talk about the things that we discuss certainly in the podcast. We talk about white shark diet and size, but we also talk about the temperatures that white sharks prefer. We talk a little bit about rogue sharks, but you'll see that even though rogue sharks are kind of a fiction, sharks do tend to hang out around certain areas. It's just, you know, there's conditions. Um, one of the things that I wanted to mention is that throughout this interview, I say shark attack so many times. And as if you did listen to the Device Jaws episode, you'll know that we are not supposed to really be saying that anymore. I should have been saying shark bite, and I want to apologize for that. But I do repetitively say shark attacks in this podcast. Um, one of the things that I didn't even get to in the podcast that I wanted to so much is how special our population of white sharks are. Heidi and I talked for a very long time about the Northeast Pacific population of great white sharks. We talked about why they're protected, the awesome technology that she's using to study them, as well as other researchers. And we also talked about a little thing called the White Shark Cafe that you may have seen in the news. White Shark Cafe, or the Shared Offshore Foraging Area, is a new development in shark research, and we talk a whole bunch about it. So get ready for that. We also talk a lot more about the nurseries that are along the coast. Um, and also, Heidi read the book, and so she had some funny commentary on uh, her thoughts, basically, on the differences between the novel and the movie. So without further ado, here is the Heidi interview. Okay, so um, I do have a little bit of a bio written for you, but if you would like to introduce okay. yourself uh, in a way that so it has you know all of the marks that you want to hit for what you how you, you want to sound. So okay, um, my name is Heidi Dewar, and I'm a scientist at the Southwest Fisheries Science Center um, in La Jolla, California. I work in the Life History Program, and our group is responsible for collecting the biological data that supports. Support sustainable management of fish like um, tuna or sharks or billfish, which would include swordfish. Okay. Um, so we're here to talk a little bit about white sharks because you wrote the status report for the northeast population of uh, white sharks that we have off our, not only our waters, but Mexican waters. Um, but that report is, it was in 2008, correct? Um, I think it was more like 2012, 2012. actually. Yeah. Okay. So it's still pretty current, still yeah. up to date. Um, and there's a lot of exciting stuff going on. But uh, let's talk a little bit some basic information about white sharks. So, for instance, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about shark attacks, obviously, mm -hmm. or shark incidents in uh, the podcast. So, you know, it's been said that we're not very good food <laughs> for, yeah. for white sharks. What's a typical white shark diet? Um, well, the, their diets actually change with ontogeny or development, like mm -hmm. smaller white sharks. Um, until maybe, you know, eight or nine feet would feed mostly on like fish or sharks, skates, rays, um, and often feed like off, off the shelf. Um, and then when they get to be about that size, then their diet shifts. And interestingly, their teeth morphology also shifts. Um, and they start feeding on marine mammals. So they would eat seals, sea lions, or um, feed on dead whale, floating whale carcasses, which sounds very gross and is, but good food source. <laughs> um, so they have a pretty high metabolic rate. They're warm-blooded, um, what we call endothermic, which means that they need more food than your average shark. Um, and in order to fulfill that need, they really need a prey source that's really energy dense and very fatty. And marine mammals, because they live in water and need to have a lot of insulation to stay warm, they have a lot of fat. Um, so that, that serves as a really good prey source or food source for great white sharks. And we're pretty bony by comparison. We're, yeah, for the most part, we are pretty bony and, and definitely don't have, you know, the same amount of fat as like a marine mammal would. So you mentioned that white sharks are warm-blooded, but um, so does that mean that they move with temperature gradients? Like is there a, an ideal temperature in the water column that they're going to want to try to stick to? Are they going to, like as the seasons change, are they going to go north and south? Um. It's, a, it's always been really hard um, to sort of pinpoint why animals are moving, whether it's their own physiological constraints or it has more to do with what their prey are doing. 
for something like a white shark, they can actually span a real, especially as adults, they can span a broad range of temperatures. So they're going from the relatively cold waters off of even Oregon or Washington to the tropics of Hawaii. Mm. So the adults have a very broad temperature range. The juveniles are smaller and can't control their body temperature quite as much. And they're more dependent on like being within a temperature range that suits their physiology. So the smaller animals you would expect to move north and south with the seasons, which is what we see happening. Um, There have been some tracking studies done on um, juvenile white sharks, and we see that they're, you know, in the Southern California Bight, so like south of Point Conception, down, um, but closer to us in like the summer and fall. And then as waters cool, they move south into Mexico. Because that was one of the points in the book uh, and in the movie is that they kept on saying that the shark wasn't going to stay in the area, that it was going to move into colder waters. And that it seems true that sharks are migratory, like they're not going to stay in the same spot. But this idea that they're kind of chasing a certain temperature water, is that a little bit of fiction? Um, it's a little bit of fiction. The And again, it, in some ways it gets back to what their prey are because the most productive waters on our coast are in, you know, a bit farther north and cooler waters. And mm-hmm. there you have a really broad resource base to support those big um, populations of marine mammals. Um, so it it's linked both to oceanography and the environment and probably a bit of physiology as well because certainly there's a range at which, you know, it's either too warm or too cold for them to be happy. Um, So you talked about different sizes, about how smaller sharks are going to be a little bit more dependent on the temperature of the water. But what is the average size for a white shark, including the maximum size? Well, the maximum, I mean, you read all sorts of reports in the literature, but the one that's really been validated is about 21 feet for um, the largest shark. And then You know, they continue to grow through their lives. So an average size is kind of a, um, you know, it would be like asking what's the average size of a human being. Well, you have little kid human beings and you have adult human beings and creating one average from all of that, you know, it's not sure how much information that provides. Um, They're born at about a meter and a half and... um, you know, what we would expect to see slightly smaller animals off our coast for the most part, and then larger ones north of Point Conception. So the size is really going to vary depending on where you are and the life history phase. Okay. So because, for instance, the uh, shark attack that happened just this past summer, I believe that was reported to be a juvenile uh, white shark because the boy reported that it was, I think, six feet long, maybe. Oh, is it only six feet? I guess I haven't seen the the final report. I thought that the guy in the kayak said it was considerably larger than that. Hi. Um, really quick, the shark was 11 feet, not six feet, as I suggest in the interview. It was 11 feet long, so Heidi was more correct than I was. Anyway, back to the interview. It would be surprising to me if, if a six-foot white white bit someone. I might be confused because there was also the woman last year who got bit mm-hmm. who has a drink named after her now in Oceanside. Oh, <laughs> really? uh, yeah. Um, I think that she, I know that uh, one of those the more the two most recent shark attacks like it was um, found because it was you know she had a couple of stitches and she was fine or I thought maybe the little boy had a couple of stitches. It wasn't but he's been in the hospital for a while now. Yeah he's I think he's out now. He mm-hmm. went home and um I think it was that they thought was a mature shark, which okay. and boys and girls mature at a different age and size. Like the boys mature at about um, nine to ten years of age and nine or ten feet, interestingly. And then the females mature more at 14 or 15 when they're about 14 or 15 feet long. Hmm. Okay. That makes sense. Um, okay. So that was the basic information about mm-hmm. white sharks that I wanted to cover. So now we can kind of talk about the cool stuff. Um, so before we leap into the White Shark Cafe, let's talk a little bit about the tech, which you have mm-hmm. worked on. So you've worked to actually attach tags, mm-hmm. which track animals just when they come kind of close to the surface, it sends a GPS signal to a satellite. Um, there are a couple of different types of technology that we use to look at large scale movements. Okay. Um, one is um, they're what we call spot tags, and the spot tags you attach to the dorsal fin, and when the fin breaks the surface, it talks to the NOAA weather satellites. 
And the NOAA weather satellites then calculate a position from the transmissions and send that to your computer or your office. And those are great for animals like mako sharks or white sharks that do spend a lot of time at the surface. So like when the white sharks that they've been tracking, they've been able to get hits every day that the tag is programmed to transmit for, um, for years potentially. Until the battery uh, dies. <laughs> until the battery dies, exactly. And you, typically what they would do is um, program the tag so it talks like every three or four days so you extend the lifetime because you really want those large-scale movements. Like, you know, um, if you have like nine months, that sounds amazing. But if a female's making like a two-year reproductive cycle, which is what they do, you're not going to capture that at all. So it's really important to get those long tracks. Um, the other technology that we use, w which can be used on animals that don't always come to the surface that allow for those spot tags, they're called pop-off satellite archival tags. And those, they look kind of like a microphone. And um, those are attached to the animals with a dart and they record temperature, depth, and light. And then at a pre-programmed time, this little pin that holds the tag to the shark corrodes the tag comes to the surface and then transmits summaries of the data that it's been collecting to the satellites. And so from um, temperature and depth, you can look at movement, uh, vertical movement patterns and habitat preferences. And using light, you can actually estimate latitude and longitude, kind of the same way that ancient sailors did sailing around the seas. Hmm. Um, so do you pick them up? Oh, no, no you just it's leave just you just leave them out there. And those are amazing because you never have to see that animal again. Yeah. Like you just you catch it once, you put the tag on and then, you know, you get all that data. The limitation of those tags is they tend not to last for multiple years, which, as I was mentioning, can give you kind of a different story about what they're with the behavior of the animals. So what are the tags telling you? Where are they going? Um, they Sharks have been tagged for the most part in two locations by two different groups of scientists, by the Stanford Monterey Bay Aquarium group up off the Farallon Islands, which is some people call the Red Triangle, um, and then by another group called the Marine um, Conservation Science Institute that's off, based out of Oceanside, actually. And they've tagged sharks out at Guadalupe Island, which is a relatively recent aggregation. Um, and what seems to be happening is that they spend, you know, summer, late summer, fall into the winter at these aggregation sites close to shore where there are a lot of marine mammals. Um, and then they move offshore for the rest of the year. And the males seem to go to this relatively small, it's like thousands of square, square kilometers, this area that some people call the ca cafe and some people call the sofa, depending on what you think they're doing out there. And the females actually more meander around a bit, and they're going, you know, they'll spend two years away from the aggregation sites, sometimes three years away from the aggregation sites. They may go over to Hawaii, but their, their paths and their locations are kind of less directed and more, I don't know if they're random, but they seem, they appear more random. So from what I understand, the White Shark Cafe or the, I'm trying to remember what SOFA, SOFA oh, stands for. Shared Offshore Foraging Area. There we go. Um, and I kind of, I go back and forth about which one, which term I like better. <laughs> and uh, and it actually, they're, they're based on a presumed role of that area. Like yeah. the Shared Offshore Foraging Area isn't presuming that they're reproducing out there, but just that they're out there to eat. And the um, cafe, I can't remember what what, that's, what that one stands for, but that their hypothesis is that they're actually mating out there. Um, I personally think that the evidence points to mating near the in the near shore aggregation sites because you have much more concentrated ag aggregations of individuals, and we know that both the boys and girls are there, whereas that offshore area. The distribution of the females, they're not, they don't seem to be there as much kind of yeah. passing through. It's not concentrated and it's hundreds of thousands of square kilometers. So it's make, you know, be harder to find the girls out there. Whereas if you're near shore. I was looking at it like, you know, people wouldn't. I think the cafe kind of invokes this image of this very tight spot that they're all coming to. But in reality, it's it looks like it's the size of Nevada. 
that. According to whitesharkcafe.org, the size of the cafe is closer to New Mexico for what it's worth. It's a pretty big area. Um, they also, if you, you know, it's we still don't know a ton about um, white shark biology. And we don't know, for example, exactly what the gestation period is. So how long after they mate, they have babies. Um, but if you, it appears like it might be about 18 months. And so if you do the back calculation, that 18 months from when they pup is um, when they're at the aggregation sites. And they do see um, mating um, injuries or wounds because when sharks mate, the male will bite the female. Um, and they see those wounds at the aggregation sites as well. But, you know, it's kind of fun that there's still a mystery and we still don't 100% know what's going on. You know? well, the other thing about the sofa um spot is that it's not just white sharks that are using it. From what I understand, it's not really heavy marine mammals. So it's interesting that it's a foraging area because you'd think that if there's a lot of adult white sharks there, there'd also be a lot of uh, marine mammals hanging out. And there are some dolphins and sperm whales, but it seems mm -hmm. to be a lot of squid, which is what drives the dolphins and the sperm yeah. whales there. So it's it's a shared area that is very accurate. But it doesn't areas. seem to be as much food as maybe we thought for white sharks. Um, I don't know. We don't fully know what they're feeding on out there, but that area oceanographically is fascinating. Like, it's a really important area for um, big-eye tuna fisheries. And there's this great paper by a Japanese scientist from the 80s um, who sort of hypothesized why it was so rich for big-eye tuna. And that area coincides with, um, the dropping of the oxygen minimum zones. So basically, if, if you do like a line from the California coast out to Hawaii and you look at the depth at which the oxygen minimum zone is at, it's shallow really close to the, the coast. And that means that it's hard for fish to get down there that are gill, using their gills for, mm -hmm. to respire to get access to prey. So it's kind of, it serves as a marine protected area in some ways for all these fish that are deep because the predators can't get to them unless mm. you're a marine mammal. So um, as you go from the coast to offshore, the depth of that goes much, much, much deeper. And so all of a sudden you have this spot where now all these deep scattering layer organisms like the fish and the crustaceans and the squid are now suddenly um, outside of that oxygen minimum zone because the oxygen minimum zone sort of sunk below them, and now they're accessible to all those predators. Huh. And that area where the cafe or the sofa is and their really rich big-eye tuna fisheries is right where that oxygen minimum zone starts to, to go deeper. So it's probably, it could be that you know, all these prey organisms are sort of protected because of the low oxygen zone closer to the coast, and that's finally the area where predators can get at them, and so they're, you know, going gangbusters. That would also explain why it's so big, because a gradient is going to happen over a large area of time yeah. as opposed to a seamount. Yeah, point. Yeah. Yes, right. Did um, that make sense? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> Although it made sense to me. Did that make sense? <laughs> yeah, okay. That is the voice of Derek Acosta letting us know that our science makes sense. He is often the voice of reason. So there's been some talk about the White Shark Cafe becoming a UNICEF heritage site, one of the first marine offshore heritage sites. I'm not sure if you are familiar with this or if you think it would be useful for conservation purposes. Um, I'm not familiar with it. And I'd have to look more at what the risks are. Um, my concern about this trend towards increasingly limiting U.S. fisheries um, has to do with something called the transfer effect. And U.S. fisheries are, they're not perfect, and we do have bycatch, but the best regulated fisheries on the planet. And if we shut down our own fisheries, what happens is we end up importing more seafood. And imported seafood is caught under far fewer regulations. So the ecological footprint of a swordfish steak 
is much higher if it's imported than if it comes from our own fishermen. And so I would rather see some a look towards balance and really trying to quantify where, what the concerns are. Um, and then based on those concerns and sustainability, then determining what the best course of action is. So is it perhaps more intelligent to limit the types of fisheries that can go out there? I've heard that there's a lot of long lines that mm-hmm. are in the White Shark Cafe area, and uh, those are particularly harmful not to not only white sharks, but to sea turtles and to a lot of other protected species that are um, open ocean pelagic species. Um, is it and obviously NOAA does a lot to regulate the fisheries right. in the open water, but is and, it maybe more those, about picking fisheries that work better to protect certain animals? There's a um, there's definitely a concept out there that longline fisheries are inherently bad, and they're very variable. And current longline fisheries, like the current longlines are not your grandfather's longlines. There have been so many gear modifications to reduce impacts, and they're constantly working on those. So also the deep set fisheries, where which are the big eye fisheries, they're out of surface waters where you have most of the turtles and the marine mammals. So the bycatch in those fisheries is actually much less. Um, we had a longline vessel that was operating in that area for probably around a decade. And I think they had one sea turtle interaction and the turtle was released alive. And I'm not sure they had any marine mammal interactions. Um, so I think what one would want to do is actually look at the data from those specific boats Hmm. and then decide what the specific issues were in that area because it's going to change depending on the oceanography, depending on the species composition, depending on the depth that you're fishing at. So I think that, you know, people tend to use a really broad brush when talking about longline fisheries and they're not all created equal, equal. So it may be that it's not a problem out there. We don't know that really for sure. So what you would want to do is collect the data and figure out where the sustainability concerns are. And, and, you know, working for NOAA, our responsibility is sustainability. And sustainability kind of has three elements to it. One is you know, the fishery sustainability, and we're, we look after the well-being of our fishermen and our fisheries. There's an economic interest and concern. The other is the target species. Are you fishing those sustainably? Meaning, will we be fishing? Can our grandchildren fish for big eye tuna out in that area based on the levels that we're fishing at? So that sustainability at that level. And then the third element is is um, broader ecosystem or habitat impact? Are you having an impact to the habitat that reduces, you know, the, the richness or the diversity? Or are you taking too many bycatch species and that's not sustainable for any of those populations? So the, as a government employee, that's our mandate. Mm-hmm. Um, and conservation is different for different people. And for some people, it's very emotional and for some people, one turtle is too many. But it's and and it's a different conversation um, because if you know populations can handle some level of mortality, and as a government um, biologist, my job is to make sure that those populations are fine. Um, and you know, if one turtle is too many, that's that's a different conversation. But you're right. I think it's it's you know a couple a different example is a couple of years back they um, allowed Native Americans to kill two bald eagles for a, a religious ceremony, mm-hmm. which um, is very reasonable. The population can absolutely handle right. the hit, um, right. and there were a lot of at the time there were a lot of people that were calling literally every ornithological organization that they could get their hands on trying right. to protest this. And I understand it; it's a protected bird and it needs our protection. But right, you know. Two is a willing. It's a. It's it's a. It's it's only two. <laughs> yeah. Right. And and it's sustainable. Yeah. So it's not going to keep the population from going on in perpetuity. 
Yeah. And that's our responsibility is to try to balance utilizing a resource but doing it sustainably because the you know there's the transfer effect of course and you know fish are also a great source of protein and they you know make for vibrant shoreside communities like in San Diego our whole fishing community's been revitalized by like the dockside market yeah. and you know the direct marketing from the boats straight to consumers and the chefs are totally into it and you know so it's we can do it. It's challenging. Um, but I think that, you know, in the end, if we do it sustainable, sustainably, that's that's the end goal. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And I think, yeah, there is a lot of demonization of long lines, including in my own bias. Like, I know that I tend to be very wary of any report that I read that's like, oh, long lines are fine. Um but you're right. They're not your father's, or your grandfather's no, uh, long lines. So. They've made they've made a tremendous amount of advancements, and there's more work that needs to be done. Like with turtles, circle hooks made a huge difference. Yeah. Um, with sharks, there's still some work that needs to be done, and and part of it's fisherman education as well as developing the gear so that if they're caught, they're released quickly and in a way that minimizes mortality. Do you think that there is a difference between the way that the different coasts, I mean, being a, a West Coast but still a federal employee, you probably have an understanding for how um, different the managing challenges are between the East Coast and the West Coast. Is there still a difference? Because I know that public opinion of what fishermen should and shouldn't be able to do is a lot harder to infiltrate on the East Coast than it is on the West Coast. Um, I guess the difference that I've noticed is, you know, there are fisheries on the East Coast. They go back hundreds of years and that their whole communities are sort of steeped with that history. Um, it'd be like if, you know, all of California was Little Italy with that fishing history. Um, and I think that there's there's more acceptance of that. And I think just the familiarity um, gives people kind of a deeper sense for it. Um, in California, it's a very liberal and, and um, conservation-minded state, and I love that about it. But I think sometimes people don't have the time to really dig into the weeds about the issues and fully understand the issues. And it makes it so that, you know, it's easier to get people riled up on an emotional level and sort of not have the sustainability conversation. And so decisions are being made more on an emotional level than on a sustainability level, Okay, if that makes sense. Yeah. No. We also have far fewer resources, <laughs> which is very frustrating. Yeah. But... Um. So switching gears a little bit um, to our coast, specifically mm -hmm. our coast, because the White Shark Cafe is a bit of a sh I mean, it's it's mostly it's the eastern tropical Pacific Ocean, correct? It's it's at about um, 25 degrees north and about 135 degrees west. Yeah. So um, kind of between whoops, Baja and uh, Hawaii. Mm -hmm. um, but. Our waters, like our direct mm -hmm. waters, have um, another important part to play in uh, shark important, like, I guess, you know, shark habitat that's worth conservation. Uh, so from, was it Point Conception to kind of the tip of um, um, Baja? about Vizcaino Bay, which is um, a little bit more farther south than halfway down. Okay. Um, and that's a really important nursery area. So by nursery... Um, why don't you please just define like what yeah. types of sharks are kind of using our our sh oh, my gosh. waters? Um, the California is on what we call an eastern boundary current oceanographically, and as a result of the just the the flow of water and wind patterns, there's a lot of upwelling which supports a really um, productive forage base and ecosystem, and because of that, it's a foraging ground for a ton of different species from swordfish to um, squid to marine mammals and of course the sharks and we've got um, 
thresher sharks and blue sharks and white sharks and mega sharks that are all using the the California current. Mm-hmm. And all of those, all four of those species have pups that occur in the Southern California Bight, which is kind of point conception down. And it's where we have a bit of more broad shelf habitat, which is, you know, there's a lot of so um, productive bottom fish there and b- productive habitats. So you get sharks and rays and hake and halibut and all sorts of different fish. So it, it it's also a bit warmer, which increases growth rates. And there's less overlap with adults in the area for all those sharks, which will help reduce predation because, you know, shark wouldn't think twice about eating a baby shark. Yeah, a little cannibalistic. Yes. <laughs> um, so are there any things that San Diegans can do to help promote? I mean, it's, it's kind of funny to think about promoting the general health and well-being of an animal that can potentially cause us harm, but they're an important keystone species mm-hmm. for this region. So is there something that we can keep in our in our heads when we use the beaches? Um, from a protection perspective, I think that's more about lifestyle and overall keeping the oceans healthy. Um, and I mean, to do that really, gosh, there's a lot that we can do, you know, don't try to minimize your plastics use is one thing. Try to reduce your carbon footprint because as the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere go up, oceans become more acidic. And we really do not have a handle on the, the potential ramifications of ocean acidification. Um, California and the U.S. have actually done a really good job of putting some protective measures in place for white sharks. So their populations were depleted um, decades ago now, probably for two reasons. One, fishing, and two, because we really decimated the marine mammal populations um, in the early 1900s for the fur trade. Um, So in 1994, a couple things happened, actually, just kind of coincidentally. California eliminated all net fisheries within state waters, which is three nautical miles. And that is prime white shark habitat. Like, that covers the vast majority of the shelf where those baby white sharks want to be. And those nets did catch quite a few baby white sharks. Mm. So that source of juvenile mortality was, was almost eliminated with that, the nets being pushed out three miles There was also a high seas drift net ban the same time by the UN, and that fishery caught some adult white sharks. So you had a reduction in mortality on both the juveniles and the adults at about the same time. And and also because with the Marine Mammal Protection Act, I think which went in place in the early 70s, um, marine mammals are protected. So those populations have just gone gangbusters, like California sea lion populations are, are large and healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's an important source of food for the adults. And then that net ban um, on the shelf also um, resulted in an increase in the prey for the juveniles. So we had a reduction in mortality on the juveniles, a reduction in mortality on the adults, and an increase in prey base kind of across size classes that ultimately has led to an increase in the population off our coast. So our population is increasing. We don't know what carrying capacity is, so we don't really know at what level we would expect the population just kind of plateau out. Um, but evidence is that it's it's increased off California. It's good to hear that they're they're getting healthy yeah. again, especially if they have a lot of food in in yeah. fatty mammals. And you know, it's it's kind of a good news story. Like yeah. we put some protections in place, and look what happened. Things got better. So yeah. it's that's you know, in this day and age, it's nice to see some good news stories. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask, and if this is something that you had mentioned that you didn't want to talk about the genetics of uh, the animal, but uh, and we don't have to talk specifically about like why the Northeast population um, is potentially genetically diverse uh, from the rest of the white sharks. Oh, but um, it's um, there's I guess there are two two questions. Are sorry, I totally interrupted no, you. No, no, no. I? I was just gonna say that if there if there is something that you can 
speak to as to yeah. why our population of white sharks are um, special, you know, why they are, you know, that they are being considered for individual protections outside of the general white shark population across the globe. Right. Um, and yeah, it's just what efforts are being done to, besides the ones that you've already mentioned. Yeah. Um, so in management, you know, you have the species, um, but then within a species, within their distribution, you can have um, unique populations of that species. And what you really want to do is you want to make sure that they are maintained at healthy levels throughout their range. And in order to do that, you have to kind of manage at that a regional level. Because like if we eliminated all our white sharks, they wouldn't come in from Japan or from Australia. So we have like this unique independent unit, even though it's within the species, there's there's no evidence of any mixing with different regions in the Pacific. So we protect them as a separate stock. And the genetics um, confirms that there's that reproductive isolation and a lack of mixing with like Japan and with Australia. And so that's why they're protected. Mm -hmm. um, they're also, um, they must be CITES listed and they're probably listed in IUCN and these, um, there are a few different mechanisms that we have for protecting migratory species in the ocean at and different levels. And I think they pretty much have all of them. Yeah, because and there's a couple of different um, not nonprofit, not pro not nonprofit, uh, non-government organizations like Oceana that are campaigning to give them the legal distinction of being a separate population. If, um, they kind of, I they, mean, they I don't know what their, else yeah. they could do. They're already being managed as a separate population. Yeah. So I'm not sure what the, what the point of that would be or what their end goal is there. I think with a lot of these organizations is that they're, you know, they find the the one topic that they feel strongly about and they, they want to make sure that they've done everything that they can, which is, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that um, currently our population, there's all evidence is that it's increasing. You have, you know, there was that, um, there's a completely new aggregation site off Mexico, which... Um, the Guadalupe Island, like if, you know, there may have been small number of individuals there in the past, but it really wasn't until like the late 90s, early 2000s that they started seeing large numbers there. Mm. And they've identified hundreds of animals from that, that aggregation site individuals and are kind of following them over time. So are those adults or those juveniles that they're identifying? Mostly adults. Mostly adults. Yeah. Hmm. It's a, it's the most, there are some sub-adults. But it's mostly adults. Hmm. And that, that's where the um, MCSI group, that's where they, they do their research. And they have a photo ID study. I mean, similar work's going on at the Farallon Islands as well. Um, so, And I'm not sure what else we could do to protect them. I mean, they're prohibitive. You, you can't take them. The, the nearshore habitat is protected. Um, be and I guess it gets back to sustainability. You know, if there is some mortality offshore with those fisheries, it's not happening at a level that's hindering a population increase. All right. So the book. Yes. I imagine that you've watched the movie. Uh, I did. I watched it. was the first horror movie I watched as a kid. I remember it vividly. <laughs> no, no, no. I remember uh, being afraid of pools yeah. for a little while after watching it. Um, but yeah, reading the book as an adult was kind of a different experience because it is very much an adult book. I would not recommend oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. the book to children. <laughs> I, was, I was surprised at the differences between the book and the movie, actually. Yeah. You know, like the people who... Um, some people in the book didn't make it that made it in the movie. And there were sort of like the interesting other dynamics going on. Uh, we're, we're okay with spoilers. So we can talk about, so you're talking about how Hooper makes it in the film. Yeah. He's, yeah. Yes. No, he's munched big time. He's, um, so that's interesting because I, reading reports about what happened is, is they were filming the white sharks in uh, Australia mm -hmm. and um, the dummy that was supposed to be Hooper fell out of the cage when they got that amazing footage and they couldn't reshoot it. So they just changed the script so Hooper lived. <laughs> like that was. Well, I'm glad that yeah. he didn't have an affair with his wife in the movie. If uh, yeah. if he lived, <laughs> I guess that. Was... So yeah, what Heidi and I are talking about here is that in the book, 
Cooper actually has an affair with Brody's wife. It's very, very entangled, and it's one of the reasons why, in my opinion, Hooper is much less likable in the novel than he is in the film. Um, what Peter Benchley said in the 30th anniversary uh, release of the novel Jaws, what he wrote in this essay um, when he was writing the screenplay for Jaws, he said, I have never written a screenplay, but I had asked for and been given permission to write the first couple drafts of Jaws. At our first meeting, after an exchange of pleasantries, Richard Zenuk said to me, and I'm paraphrasing here, this picture is going to be an A to Z adventure story, a straight line, so we want to take out all of the romance stuff, all of the mafia stuff, all of that stuff will just be distracting. You, who have never read Jaws, who have only seen the film, I can see you frowning. I can hear you saying to yourself, romance, mafia, what is he talking about? Where's all that stuff? Read on, please, and discover for yourselves. That's, I mean, you know, obviously you want him to live. But yeah, but Hooper in general is just a lot more likable. Yeah, in the movie? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Made me proud to be a marine biologist. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the um, I found one of the things that was kind of interesting um, about the book was the asides that came from the shark's uh, perspective. So, you know, pretty iconically, Chrissy Watkins is in the water. She's skinny dipping. Right. And like in the film, one of the crazy things about it is that you can kind of see her legs. The shark is creeping up on her. Yeah. I actually found the book to be more eerie because uh, eventually kind of does this job of describing the way that the shark is barely moving and just responding to, to stimuli. weird. Like, and I found that to, from what I understand about sharks to be more accurate, or at least it read as accurate. Yeah. I'm not sure someone who has a lot more of experience knowing of what their life history is like, if you felt the same way. Yeah, I thought he did a um, a good job of of sort of capturing the biology in that in those moments. Like initially, you know, initially it's smell. Like sharks can smell. They use different of different range, distance range for their different senses. Mm -hmm. So they've got um they can, they have excellent um, olfactory senses, so they're really good smellers, and they can smell blood like from miles and miles away. Um, then they also have the lateral line, which are all these. And he explained that really well, actually, yeah. which I was like, oh, goody, um, especially for like the early seventies. Like, like, yeah. How much information was available at the time? I know, but that was good, um, which allows them to de detect whoops, uh, detect vibrations. Um, can also hear, and then they've got their electrosensory senses, those ampullae of Lorenzini on their nose. Um, I'm not sure how much a white shark needs to use those once it's got, like, you know, it can feel it and smell it and mm. see it. Um, and their eyes are pretty small, so I'm guessing that vision isn't as important as some of the other senses, though sharks have modified retina, which allows them to see contrast really well. So mm -hmm. they can see shadows or profiles. And the thought is that, um, like most fish, they have this period day to night where their eyes are adjusting and they're not quite as good at seeing. And that's sunrise and sunset. So the sharks are really good at seeing at sunrise and sunset because they can see those profiles. And that's when a lot of fish and marine mammals exactly. are active. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, and um, so that kind of gives them a competitive advantage hmm. visually. So one of the big difference I kind of found also between the book and the movie was this idea of uh, a rogue shark where, yeah. like, I, I mean – it's still a little unbelievable that the shark kind of just sticks around one area, especially a shark that size sticking that close by uh, such a shallow area. Um, but did you find that the book also kind of perpetuated this idea that it was chasing the humans or that it was just hanging out? Um, I, I got the sense that it knew that those vibrations were food and it was going to follow them regardless. So, you know, it, the hypothesis is that some of those initial bites are sort of test bites. Like, is this something nice and fatty that I'm going to want to eat? Um, mm -hmm. And there wasn't that check in the book. 
like, you know what I mean? Which, and who knows what's in the mind of a shark? Like, right? I mean, really, we don't know if, if it's that they're doing a test bite and then going to come back, but people get out of the water before that can happen. Um, And, and they're, you know, what often what it's thought that they'll do is they'll do a debilitating bite and then they'll wait for the animal to die and then they'll go back Mm -hmm. because, you know, sea lions and elephant seals, they have sharp teeth and they have claws. And if you don't have to deal with a very angry, unhappy sea lion that's trying to fight you off, it's, you know, it's going to be easier. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, that was one thing that wasn't really in the book. I just got the sense that it was just, it's just prey. You know, it's moving and it's moving in a way that, you know, something I want to eat moves. And so I'm going to eat it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, based on the tracking data and, and some of the behavioral data that we have, they do spend periods, long periods in small areas. Like oh. they spend months off Guadalupe Island. They spend a long time off the Farallons. They'll spend like months off the Farallons. And if you look at the tracks, they'll come in and spend a little time in some areas. So... The fact that a shark would spend weeks in an area like that wouldn't surprise me at all. Even if it was by itself? Yeah. Oh. I mean, the females, when they're kind of cruising around, they are sort of by themselves. And I think they're, they aggregate by nature, but I don't know, it doesn't seem like they actually need to be by a friend. You know what I mean? They're coming into these areas where there are lots of prey and they're going to get that prey and where there are girls and they want to get the girls. But you do see a lot of solitary individuals like the there's a shark that's been seen for years off San Onofre. I mean, we don't know if it's the same one, but mm. you don't necessarily see them swimming in schools. So having a lone individual hanging out in an area where it's been successful foraging, that seems perfectly normal. So you don't know it's the same one, I guess, because it doesn't, like, can you do photo ID on the dorsal fin with white sharks? For some reason, I thought that that was maybe something they were doing. In the, yeah. yeah. They, there are two things that you can do. The um, Off the Farallons, they've been doing the dorsal fin photo ID because the water's so murky, it's hard to get good underwater shots. Mm-hmm. Off Guadalupe Island, because the water's so clear. They use the distinctive um, patterns and that like in the, the gradient between yeah the gr- white and and gray it's really variable it's like a fingerprint basically mm-hmm. so they're more using coloration patterns than fin and off the fair lens they're using fin but I don't know if anyone's I don't think anyone's done any photo ID work the one and it may be that that fin's just not up at the surface very much you know you more hear about silhouette seeing silhouettes under the water than you do about yeah. fins slicing the surface. Yeah, that's a very um, Hollywood interpretation of what a shark is going. Yeah. I mean, really, you're not going to see a shark coming. <laughs> no, you're not. I yeah. mean, because that's their amazing predatory machines, and predators don't want to advertise that they're there before they go in. Yeah, you know. Um, I think that the other thing, uh, going back to the book really quick, um, that was interesting was the way that the town kind of responded um, in this. Not necessarily negative. It wasn't really negative towards the shark, but it was this like dismissive way, which I've seen like growing up in a beach community actually in the Northeast. I've definitely Mm -hmm. seen that happens. Like there's this idea that you want to protect the tourist season at all costs. And, you know, we live in an area where white shark attacks or uh, bites rather do absolutely happen. So the the, the public response in the novel, um, is that something that, I mean, again, from a point of view where you're going to be on the side of not necessarily defending the shark, but kind of reminding people that this is their biology. Is that something that you kind of found to ring true? Um, I think that I guess, can you rephrase the question? Sure. Um, the, uh, the town was kind of its own character, Amity, right. in yes. the the novel and and in the 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 movie as well. Um, do you find that the way that the town Amity responded to the shark attacks mm-hmm. to be truthful to the way that communities tend to respond to shark? Um, um, here, what I've seen more is, um, you know. 
a definite willingness to close beaches and put public yeah. safety first. <laughs> I think that's been people's only concern. But, you know, it's also a different area where a different economy where people's livelihood isn't dependent on and some people's livelihood is probably dependent on the beach being open. Um, it's been such a rare event here. Um, and the, the beaches are not closed for very long. And they're, you know, n- they don't even close that much of the beach. Like when this recent attack happened, um, I live in Solana Beach. Solana Beach beaches weren't closed. And that's mm. just like five miles up the up the way. Mm. Um I mean, it's kind of nice now with, like, drones and stuff. It gives you much better access to looking offshore. Um, drones have completely changed, I feel, the way that we're doing, yeah. like, open ocean science. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of exciting, actually. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's, you know, if lifeguards just have their drone and that's how they're, you know, doing regular surveys of what's going on out there, you know, mm. to see if they see those profiles. Because they're pretty, I mean, especially in the shallower waters, if they're coming, there's not really deep blue water for them to hide in where most people are surfing. I would think yeah. you would probably see the profiles. Um, but I think that, you know, still the the risk of being bitten is still far, really, really, really small. You know, and, you know, as people, everyone says, well, you're safer in the water than you are driving to the beach. That's kind of the tagline, which is true. But, at the, you know, at the same time, there is a risk. And, you know, the, one of the most amazing things about living here is that you can walk down to the, the beach and, like, dip your feet in wilderness. Like, that is wilderness, you know. And that's amazing to be able to wade into wilderness yeah. at our doorstep. But wilderness comes with wild animals, and sharks are wild animals, and they're there. And there's always going to be a risk, a very small one. But if people go in the water, they should be aware of what the that there is a risk and keep that in mind. And there are things that you can do, like dawn and dusk are riskier times to swim. If it's just range, you don't want to swim near an outlet of like a river, not that we have huge rivers, but you'd probably want to stay stay away from the opening of the estuaries, yeah. that sort of thing. All right. Well, I feel like that was a good um, button <laughs> to the interview. Uh, I think I want to thank you for taking the time and yeah, my pleasure. All, the, all of the confusion back and forth. But this was uh, this was really interesting, and you actually you taught me some stuff, oh, some good. stuff that I think that I had a little some misconceptions on. So thank you. Happy, right. happy to help anytime. <laughs> okay. okay, that wraps it up. Uh, I want to thank you again to Heidi Dewar for her broad knowledge of not only white sharks, but the California fishing uh, industry and its history. Um, there's going to be a whole bunch of links in the description of the show linking to her status report for white sharks uh, for the whitesharkcafe.org um, and some other things that are mentioned. So, yeah. I, of course, want to thank... Uh, uh, Derek Acosta, who helped wrangle all of these interviews together, John Wanzer, as he recorded uh, this interview, and to Emily Jankowski for her time and her help. Thanks for listening.